You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we are joined today by Mark Mazzetti, who is a correspondent for the New York Times, where he has covered national security and intelligence from the newspaper's Washington Bureau since April of 2006. After he earned his master's degree in modern history from Oxford University in 1997, and good choice in topics, Mazzetti worked as a correspondent for The Economist, based in Washington, D.C. and Austin, Texas, from 1998 until 2001. While with The Economist, he covered national politics, including the candidacy of George W. Bush, as well as business, general news, and culture stories in the Southwest. From 2001 through 2004, he was a Pentagon correspondent for U.S. News and World Report, covering defense and national security. During the war in Iraq in 2003, he spent two months embedded with the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force as a reporter in Baghdad. Mazzetti then was a staff writer for the Los Angeles Times, where he covered the Pentagon and military affairs from June 2004 until April 2006. Since the September 11th attacks, he has made several reporting trips to Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Horn of Africa. Mazzetti received the 2011 Polk Award, for coverage in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and was recipient of the 2006 Gerald R. Ford Prize for Distinguished Reporting on National Defense. In 2008, Mazzetti won the Livingston Award in the category of National Reporting for Breaking the Story of the CIA's Destruction of Videotapes Showing Harsh Interrogations of Al-Qaeda Detainees. In 2009, he shared a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the intensifying violence in Pakistan and Afghanistan and Washington's response. The previous year, he was a Pulitzer finalist for the revelations about the CIA's detention and interrogation program. He is also the author of The Way of the Knife, The CIA, A Secret Army, and A War at the Ends of the Earth. Mark, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the Spy Museum. Glad to be here. So I want to start with some general questions about covering intelligence and talk about some of the difficulties covering an area that usually doesn't lend itself to transparency and openness. I mean, most of the action of these organizations are not for public knowledge. And in fact, they purposely try to hide most of what they're doing. Um, So can you talk a little bit just in a general sense about how hard it is to deal with the defense and intelligence reporting you know, versus you know, politics or sports or anything else where people actually want you to know information. In this case, no one wants you to know this information. 
Well, it's hard, and I think it's getting harder. Uh, but I also think it's never been more important. The uh, I covered, as you said, the the military and Pentagon for about five years, and I thought that was difficult. Uh, but uh, at least there, you can go to the Pentagon, you can wander the halls, you can run into people, set up interviews, uh, you can go to Iraq and Afghanistan and embed and and see what's going on. Uh, that doesn't happen when you're covering intelligence, or very very rarely happens. So so it's it's another. Uh, sort of order of magnitude difficult, uh, more difficult uh, to cover because, as you said, uh, really these are agencies and organizations that, uh, that that don't want to be transparent. They're not built to be transparent. Um, and yet the what they're doing, I would say, is never more central to uh, how America conducts itself around the world uh, uh, than it is today. Um, you've got um, these organizations that are central to, uh, to, that are essentially running wars, running a global war uh, that has been uh, in the shadows for more than a decade. Before that, you had intelligence has always been important to American foreign policy and to American security, but intelligence agencies now are at the forefront of actually lethal operations, uh, combat, uh, obviously signals intelligence, um, surveillance. Um, so that's why I say I don't think it's ever been more important to cover these organizations, to cover what they're doing, and to try to shed light on this because this has a real impact. Let me ask you about anonymous sources. Uh, because that's how, in some cases, if not many cases, you're getting your information. There can be real problems associated with this. And one of the main ones, of course, is the inability to verify stories. You can't fact check. There's no politifact for intelligence. There's no way to just look at the stats like you would if somebody in sports said something that was nonsense. How do you... How? I'm sure in journalism school, anonymous sources is something that you have long conversations about. How? How do you go about existing in a world where that's you know you don't have authorization from a deputy director of intelligence or someone you're getting a lot of information from whistleblowers or leakers the wrong word but somebody who is not allowed allowing you to attribute this information to them well i think more broadly in journalism anonymous sources uh, get a a bad name, and in some cases they sh they should. I mean, I think anonymous uh, anonymity is overused in journalism. I think people are granted anonymity when they shouldn't be. Um, it becomes a sort of lazy default thing for journalists to just accept it uh, instead of pushing for people to be more transparent about uh, who they are and how we as news or news organizations can be transparent about where we're getting our information from. That being said, um, there is it would be impossible uh, to cover national security issues without anonymous sources. And I would argue you would never get uh, the biggest and most important stories without anonymous sources. You said in the beginning, um, you know, how difficult it is uh, for to get information out of these agencies and, and people don't want their name in the, in the news and and that there are real repercussions for people who do talk to the press. Um, so uh, therefore, it's incumbent upon us to use anonymous sources judiciously, uh, but also to recognize their importance and their place. Um, but at the same time, to constantly um, – you can't just take what someone says at face value. Right. You can't just accept one what one person has to say, has to say because – that person, no doubt, has an agenda in right. talking to you. Um, you've got to check it out elsewhere. And um, so 
the answer is I think it's they're they're a, a necessary reality, um, um, and I think that they're they are important to this kind of reporting. How, how much is there the fear of purposeful disinformation? I mean, you're dealing with people who whose lives really focus around the idea of if misleading everyone, misleading the public, uh, and since you, you don't post their name. You can't go back and, and you know, shame them later on for telling you lies. This is not a weighted question. This can easily mm-hmm. be answered in any way. I'm, I'm more interested in just in a general sense. Like how, how aware do you need to be that you're being fed information, especially in the New York Times, right? You're the paper of record. You're the, you're the, you're the place if you want a story to go out, you go to you. Uh, is this something you constantly are, are making sure you're on guard for? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that um, – that 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 you know way more often than not it's um we have to go find people uh and it's uh it's, it's not a whole lot of people just calling you out of the blue and feeding you a story uh because they want it in the new york times especially about this world right um it's um it's there you know it's more often you know we have to go out and sort of dig up our own stories but you're right. You have to be conscious of agendas, uh, why people might be talking to you. Uh, and, and on the issue of disinformation, uh, you certainly uh, wouldn't just accept what someone tells you, especially if you have no track record with the person, uh, and, and put it in the paper and put it online and, uh, and, and without at least running it by other people, by sort of checking it out. Um, we do, we think, have a, a fair amount of, of layers that, um, that we've established to you know, prevent uh, information getting out that's wrong. Uh, and, um, and, and of course, if you find out that this person has been deliberately feeding you misinformation, you certainly don't go back uh, to that person again. Uh, and and uh, while you're, you're right, public shaming is difficult, there would be other ways to try to find, you know, make sure you just never, never go to that person again. Do they lose their right of anonymity if they feed you crap on purpose? Uh, you, you know, that's a debate. Uh, certainly um, the question of, yes, if someone lies to you, uh, then there is – I think it's an open debate about whether that person has this sort of – this arrangement you've established this based on trust. If if the trust is broken on one end, there may not be an expectation that the other person at the other end would, would, would uphold it. So, I mean, it, and functionally, this is what – reporter source relationships are is are, are relationships of trust uh, especially again in this world where people are uh, expecting that you're going to protect them mm-hmm. uh, and that they are going out in many cases on a limb to talk to you because they think that it's important for the information this person has to get out uh, and in exchange they expect that you're going to protect their communications uh, that you know if 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 a leak investigation, leak investigation happened. You wouldn't, you know, give up their names. I mean, these are all sort of things that are established over time. So the Obama administration's been infamous for prosecuting leakers and whistleblowers, particularly those uh, who leak to journalists, to to, to newspapers. Uh, you know, the James Risen case is one of the great examples of this. Certainly, uh, how much harder has it been post Snowden? So, you know, or even before that, the Thomas Drake and and the, the John Kiriakis of the world. How much harder has it been to get people to talk to you? 
It's certainly more difficult. The climate's more difficult now, uh, and it has been over the last, I'd say, three or four years than it has been in my experience covering this world uh, for, for a number of reasons. You've got, as you said, a number of leaked prosecutions, which, you know, a lot of these prosecutions end up blowing up, right? They don't, they don't uh, make a case against someone, but just the fact that they try, mm-hmm. I think, sends a message. And I think it has the intended a chilling effect on people who... You know, in many cases, I think if someone is determined to talk to the media, they're going to find a way to talk to the media. But where I think there's a, a chilling effect is uh, where if someone is maybe coming out of government and has no experience with the media and they're kind of would be on the fence, um, they have uh, it's sort of a 50-50 proposition whether they'd want to talk. I think uh, in this climate, maybe they're being inclined against just because uh, they see the risks. And, um, and I think that there's a confluence of things going on. It's not... Uh, I mean, I certainly think that the administration has been determined to crack down on leaks. Um, you also see the advent of technology that allows, uh, you know, prosecutors to make cases a lot more easily than they can. Reporters leave digital trails. Mm-hmm. Sources leave digital trails. Uh, they can follow the digital trails in ways they didn't used to be able to, and it makes their case a lot more easy. And um, and so prosecutors want to get prosecutions. And so if it becomes easier, maybe it, they, they tend to go down that route. Um, in terms of the big, you know, the big leaks like uh, Chelsea Manning and, and Snowden, um, I think what that does in, in some cases, I mean, especially Snowden, um, what Snowden revealed in many ways was the extent, the, the capabilities of the government to do some of the surveillance. So in, in some ways, um, people see how, um, what the government is doing and can do in terms of surveillance, and maybe that spooks them even even mm-hmm. more, in part because um, they realize that it's, it's very hard to have uh, safe conversations. Uh, so you find a lot more people going to encrypted conversations. Mm-hmm. I do a, a, a lot more in encrypted fashion than I ever did. I never imagined doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I resisted doing it for a long time, um, but I find myself, it's just, it's just sort of part of the game now. Now, as we talked about in the introduction, you've been doing this for quite some time. Um, clearly, from what you've written and in, 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 you know, the time you've taken uh, in this field, uh, you know this area and the intelligence field very well. Uh, and it's certainly hard to do this without becoming somewhat psychologically attached in some way. I mean, I'm sure you're a fan of this world. Uh, either familiarity breeds contempt, uh, or you can become essentially a spokesperson for the DOD or intelligence community. How do you avoid one or the other? How do you avoid keeping a journalistic integrity when you have to know so much about this field in order to effectively report on it? Yeah, I, that's, a good, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I think that um, if you're doing your job as a reporter, you are writing stories that the organization uh, probably doesn't love. Uh, they, they're, they're the types of stories that, that they would not, necessar- would not necessarily want to get out. So that can breed hostility. Um, uh, it can't mean you uh, are seen to have an, a vendetta against individuals or against organizations, but you should be tough and adversarial, and and that's why um, we have a thriving, you know, free press in the United States. Um, I think it's important, um, and and in terms of the other way, in in terms of you know staying on a beat so long or staying in a world so long that you become kind of beholden or. Um, I, that is certainly something that people should worry about as well. Um, you know, I, there's there's something that's called uh, you know it's it's not a, a peculiar Washington thing, but it happens in Washington. It's called access journalism, where people are so determined to get access to power, they don't want to write stories that might lose them access. And right. so uh, you always have to guard against that. And um, and I think it's a big problem. 
So recently, journalists have become the story in some very famous situations. In some of these cases, the journalist is the story because he or she is taken hostage overseas, sometimes killed. James Foley, Stephen Sotloff are examples of this. In other cases, the journalist becomes a story because of his or her part in revealing the information, like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald and Cy Hirsch, uh, and you can go all the way back to Woodward and Bernstein in this case. The CIA tries purposely not to use journalists as covers because of the perception of journalists already is that they're engaged in spying for their countries. I'm not trying to take away anything from these great reporters. I mean, the ones that were murdered should be heroes to all, and the ones like Greenwald and Hirsch are heroes to many, many people. But where's the line? How far should journalists be willing to go for a story? Uh, I know this is kind of a journalism 101 or grad school journalism question, but is there a limit to how much involved in a story journalist should go, especially on the intelligence and also security beat? Well, I think everyone probably has their own personal line uh, and their own their own you know way of calibrating it. Um, I mean, they sh- this journalist should go f- as far as they can and as, and as possible to get a story. Um, if it means that they get themselves involved or become quote part of the story, you know that may end up being uh, just a um, uh, part part of it. It might just be uh, um, a, a, an after effect of it. Um, now, you know, I, I think that you always. I mean, journalists generally should always remind themselves that um, they are they are storytellers, and um, that that they're there to deliver information. And uh, I'm not the important one here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there is a you know you, there's also in the last, you know, seven, eight years, you also see with the advent of social media. And, um, I mean, there's always been journalists who preen, uh, uh, on TV, uh, for, you know, for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you see a lot, a lot of it in, in, uh, in, in social media where, uh, people thump their chest about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's, uh, as, as much as you might, uh, try to avoid it. Um, I think it's probably just part of the environment now, and um, and I think you know. But I also think it's something that may turn people off about the media, and um, and so we in the media have to be conscious of that. Um, so it's. I don't think it's an easy answer to your question. I think that um, that that maybe this type of uh, reporting can lend itself to becoming part of a story in part because you get wrapped up investigations. You. Um, you know, my colleague James Risen had to be very, uh, I mean, had to go to battle over whether to reveal sources for um, some of his stories. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately, the government backed down. He, he refused to, to reveal them. So, I mean, he didn't seek that out. Um, but it's also, I think, you have to, going into this type of reporting, recognize that it might happen. So I guess the biggest, most fundamental general question uh, is uh, focus on the idea you really have to walk a fine line between informing the public and keeping national security. I mean, these are all questions uh, that could be considered uh, important to keep secret. Uh, can we do both? I mean, obviously, I think your answer is probably yes. Uh, but do you personally tend to err on the side of national security, or are you a public should know journalist? Well, I think I'm a public should know journalist. Um, I think that journalists should be public should know journalists if they're in this job um they uh you know we work i work for an organization and our inclination is we you know put information out as opposed to withholding it now we uh understand that that um 
that that there are sometimes trade-offs and you sometimes have to make decisions about what uh, is in the public's interest and what is not or what is what is uh, gratuitous information I guess uh, is the way to put it now we do these we make these decisions every day uh, and um, as I said in the very beginning there's I mean, if you if you everything is classified, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you go in on the premise that pretty much what you're dealing with is classified information, um, and and yet we have an ent- we have entire wars that are classified now. And so, if we in the media were just to s- stand back and say, okay, um, good luck with your secret war. Uh, we'll check back in ten years, see how it went. Uh, we would be abrogating our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so we have to be in there. Um, trying to ferret out information and go into the public. I think sometimes maybe people have a a misperception about how we do our job. I mean, uh, we know things, I know things uh, that um, I'm not eager or I'm not running to put into the paper because uh, they are uh, maybe secrets that, you know, very much could get people uh, in serious danger or killed. And I don't particularly see uh, a uh, interest in putting that out. Um, But again, I err on the side of more information rather than less. We always, before we run a story, uh, go uh, to a relevant organization. And just like if you're covering City Hall, you call for comment, right? We go to the Pentagon, we go to the CIA, we go to the NSA, and we say, we are running this story. And we give them, I think, you know, ample time to respond. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they come back and they say, uh, we ask you not to, or we ask you not to uh, run part of this story or this detail. And and when that happens, it sort of elevates out of my hands. It goes to my bosses and my boss's boss and, and a lot of times ends up with the executive editor of the New York Times talking to the head of a relevant agency. Mm-hmm. And there's negotiation or there's um, uh, calm discussion or there's a shouting match or it, it, there's there's I've experienced them all. And um, sometimes uh, we withhold some information uh, sometimes we listen to their argument and uh, politely say, um, thank you for making this argument, but we disagree when we're mm-hmm. running the story. Sometimes we hold stories for a certain period of time and then run them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no set answer, but but we take this very seriously and um, we think we're careful in how we go about our business. So if a couple of years ago you got an email from Edward Snowden instead of Glenn Greenwald, and he presented you with the information that would eventually go to The Guardian and eventually be released on The Intercept. Would you and The New York Times, you can't speak for your paper, would you advocate releasing the information like Greenwald did? I would certainly advocate uh, meeting Edward Snowden. I would certainly advocate um, getting what information that he had to offer. And uh, and I would certainly advocate that um, that we run stories about that information. I think there's uh, there's no doubt in my mind about that. I mean, I think we uh, have shown that what we did with in the WikiLeaks case, we ran uh, stories based off of Chelsea Manning's disclosures, uh, whether they were the State Department cables or Afghan or Iraq war logs. Um, so yes, I mean, we were we uh, needless to say, we're not happy that. <laughs> <laughs> that Edward Snowden didn't come to the New York Times, but that was his right not to. Uh, but there's no question in my mind that we would have taken the information and sifted through it and made our judgments about the stories. So you spent a lot of your career reporting on the war on terror. Uh, you wrote a book about it. Uh, yet lately, there's been a lot of emphasis on old-fashioned state actors, where it's China, 
The last few articles have been about the Chinese, the OPM hack, Russia, lots of things going on with Russia today. I also sent a sense a bit of war on terror fatigue with the public. Uh, is this shift in focus away from the war on terror to state actors something you welcome? Is it something your readers are more inclined to want to see? Do you see that same perception that I'm getting where, I mean, for, for instance, I, I don't know if we're getting jaded. Jaded might be the wrong word, maybe inoculated about these stories. Uh, American public has been, uh, you know, seeing so many stories day-to-day basis of killings overseas, of us actually doing targeted killings overseas, whether in Syria, Iraq with ISIS. Um, is there a point where... Uh, we need, we're not shocked anymore by these situations. And that's why all of a sudden people are like, oh, the Chinese, the Russians, these are, these are different stories. This isn't the same kind of, you know, somebody else died in a bombing today or right. somebody else is droned to death overseas. Well, two points. I mean, I think first off, you're, you're right. Um, you know, in the last dozen years, uh, there have, if you're a national security reporter, you generally haven't written that much about Russia or China or, um, you know, as you said, these big state actors. Um, and, and maybe we've lost some of that. We haven't, we haven't focused enough on some of this. But, but you clearly have seen now with the uh, abilities of, organi- of big state actors to do uh, large cyber attacks or, 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 or data thefts, um, it's, it's very, very important to cover. And um, so, 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 so yes, these are different kinds of stories, and 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 maybe maybe we're we're covering them now. Uh, it should have been covering them earlier, but but we're paying more attention to them now uh, because it's a little bit different. Um, but it's also very important. I but I but I also hope that um, despite fatigue, if there is fatigue about um, how the United States is conducting itself overseas in a war on terror, um, that doesn't mean that we stop writing about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's because it's very important. If, if, if it, you, I agree that the idea of the United States taking a armed drone and doing a targeted killing uh, was um, shocking in 2002 and 2003 uh, and now seems very routine. Um, and it seems routine uh, even writing about that. But it doesn't mean... We should stop. We right. should dig into it, and we should also keep trying to follow up. You know, not only the day it happened, but find out what happened. I mean, this is this is the way we do war now, and so we, um, as the media, can't uh, stop covering that. Uh, and now we see, while there had been, I think, a lull, a, a bit of a lull for a period, you see then the rise of ISIS, mm-hmm. and uh, the United States is very much struggling with how to address that threat. But I think some of the things that have uh, happened, uh, the, the the sort of tools that we've used, the United States has used over the last dozen years, we're going to continue to use into the future. Yeah, I mean, you good segue there. I mean, on, on August 25th, you wrote uh, an article, co-wrote an article uh, about ISIS and about intelligence analysis focused on the, the ISIS threat. Um, and, and one of the, the interesting points you make in this article is that what policymakers are being fed, at least, may not be the reality on the ground. And I think for us here at the Spy Museum, uh, your article really demonstrates that intelligence can be misused, maybe for lack of a better word, all along the intelligence cycle. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that article uh, and what, what you found? Yes. Uh, so the Pentagon Inspector General has opened an investigation into allegations made by uh, one or possibly more analysts. Uh, we believe them DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency analysts, uh, at least some who were embedded at Central Command. And they uh, were arguing that, uh, in essence, 
officials at Central Command are skewing intelligence analysis to make uh, the progress, make the war seem like it's going better than it is. And when I say the war, I mean the bombing campaign against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And uh, that some uh, DIA analysis at CENTCOM is, 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 for lack of a better word, uh, getting massaged to make it seem like uh, things are rosier than they are. Now, these are all loaded terms, whether it's manipulated, massaged, um, uh, what have you. And we struggled over with the, the language we would use in the story. Um, but it, but, it, but re- regardless of what verb you use, you're still talking about um, uh, very important uh, issues of um, it goes beyond just analytical judgments. I mean, it's built into the intelligence process that analysts are going to disagree. Mm-hmm. And if you're at a different agency, you know, a CIA analyst might have a view uh, that a DIA analyst will not. And the point is everyone gets together and works things out and comes to some judgments. And, and disagreements are good, right? And even disagreements presented to poly- policymakers are good. Right. So a policymaker, if I'm President Obama, I will see two I will, you know, I will look at the disagreement, and that's more helpful to me than presenting a united front. Mm-hmm. Um, what appears to be happening here is um, something beyond that, where actually judgments are getting changed after initial draft form, and um, and and that's really is is something that's potentially dangerous because we're talking about uh, uh, the progress of a you know lethal action of a war, and. You know, as someone I talked to for the story said, uh, it's more it's it, policymakers need to know uh, the judgments after a war has already started to make to then be able to adjust. Sometimes those judgments are even more important than the judgments that are made before the war started. Mm-hmm. So, so if in the course of a war they're not presented with alternate analysis, um, that's really problematic. You, you talked about decisions about what wording to use and, and what to include in the article, and I thought reading through the article before I got to the end, I'm thinking, wow, this is smells like Vietnam all over again. You actually do have at the end of the article a little paragraph about analogy to Vietnam. And it just, it, it brought up as a historian, it just brought up ideas of just the, the body count numbers that McNamara was getting in the crossover point and how uh, a lot of historians have looked back and said McNamara did what he did based on the information he was given. Uh, and that sounds, I mean, obviously this is a developing story, uh, but it sounds a lot like, you know, the president and some of the top policymakers are getting information that's been massaged, for lack of a better word, and they're, they're making decisions based on potentially problematic intelligence. Well, you're always going to have a tension, I think, between uh, analysts uh, who are either, you know, back in Washington looking at uh, uh, intelligence uh, and the people who are running a war, right? And and as we referenced in the story, you know, the very reason DIA was created was to be a sort of objective source of military intelligence that got away from what they called service bias, which was, um, you know, the Air Force had a certain take on things and they would they would play up a certain threat from the Soviets, you know, so they could uh, they could make a case for a bigger bomber fleet or something. Mm-hmm. And so DIA was supposed to be nonpartisan. And then in Vietnam, as you said, you had tension between DIA and um, and what reports from the field, commanders from the field were saying about what was happening. And they were say, sort of overruling DIA, saying uh, that, you know, the war is going a lot better than, uh, than you guys back in Washington think. So flash forward decades, uh, you know, there's, I think, a taste of that here. I think that, um, that 
you, you know, people are, are, are using different metrics to judge how a war is going. And I think we've seen DIA in the last several months kind of come out with some bleak assessments, and they're not public assessments, but they've been leaked, um, that sort of indicate that the war's, for lack of a better term, a stalemate, mm-hmm. and things are not, there hasn't been a whole lot of progress in the last year. Right. We said a year ago that ISIS had around 20,000 fighters. Today we assess they have about 20,000 fighters. So um, that's, just, uh, that's just the reality. Yeah. Let, me, let me shift gears and, and ask you about your book. Again, it's The Way of the Knife, The CIA, A Secret Army, and A War at the Ends of the Earth. Uh, and really, one of the broad focuses of your book is the blurring of lines between the military and the intelligence community. How what was considered the, the purview of the CIA for decades has kind of flipped on its head, and what was considered the purview of the military for, for hundreds of years has now been flipped to the other side. It's like, you can do a better job of explaining it than I just did. Can you talk a little bit about you know the premise? Yeah. Uh, so what what I tried to do in the book was to sort of embark on telling the story of of the shadow wars I called it. So you know the the war outside of the declared war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, wars in Pakistan and Yemen and parts of Africa and these are I think as much a part of the history of the last of the post nine eleven period as Iraq and Afghanistan and. A consequence of that, uh, of fighting these shadow wars, is that, as you said, um, you have a uh, intelligence a- uh, organization, and particularly the Central Intelligence Agency, that has really uh, transformed into a par- paramilitary organization. You have the CIA um, involved as its primary role in hunting and killing. Um, and that has remade the agency. You have a generation now of CIA officers uh, where they are told when they come in, our first task is counterterrorism. And it is not you know, human intelligence gathering, stealing secrets from state actors. It's hunting and possibly killing terrorists. Um, and so, so the shorthand is the CIA kind of became more like the Pentagon. And, and the, flip, the other side of the coin is you see um, this dramatic expansion on the military side of intelligence gathering. And I sort of trace the history in the book of, because uh, I was covering it at the time, you had uh, on 9-11 Donald Rumsfeld uh, as the defense secretary furious that uh, he had this multi-billion dollar enterprise uh, uh, called the Defense Department, and it was ill-equipped to fight this war that the United States now found itself fighting. Um, The CIA beat him, quote, beat him into Afghanistan, which made him very angry. Um, It was allowed to operate around the globe. Uh, you could send spies, you know, wherever, uh, because they had different authorities than the military had. You could send them undercover. You could send them into embassies. Uh, the military was very limited. So Rumsfeld sort of embarked to remake the Pentagon into more like the CIA. So send military intelligence officers around the globe undercover. Uh, expand dramatically um, Joint Special Operations Command to do special operations missions, to do um, not officially covert action, but something that's very similar to covert action. And so you have this blurring of the lines, and um, you know sometimes it works well uh, as it did on you know the night of May second, uh, two thousand eleven, when Osama bin Laden was killed, and you had uh, you know a group of Navy SEALs operating under CIA authority, right? Uh, and uh, you know there was basically on the flick of a switch, the C- these SEALs were declared CIA operatives because they were going deep into Pakistan. Um, so that works when it works well, but but there's all sorts of other repercussions uh, to this kind of warfare on a line. Alliances, on um, on America's standing in the world, on 
how, um, you know, the question of civilians being killed. So I sort of, in the book, try to trace the impact of this, uh, of this secret war and, um, and sort of make the case that this is, this is now, as I said earlier, how we do business, and it will be for some time to come. Well, it, it seems central to your book, the, the country of Pakistan. I mean, not just Osama bin Laden, uh, but a lot of the... I mean, we, we've talked on previous spycasts with people talking about the ISI and how Pakistan is so important to that region of the world, but at the same time, it's not necessarily uh, a, a trusted ally in all aspects of things. And so the relationship between the CIA, between the military and Pakistan is, is an interesting one uh, for many of us today in that area. Like, do, do you find that uh, that is kind of the key country to that entire region? Yeah, and, and I think I spent most of my book uh, looking at Pakistan and what has happened there, because it really, I think, is has been the laboratory for this kind of secret war that I write about. Um, and, I mean, I just find the whole relationship fascinating where, um, you know, the United States and Pakistan are, I think, uh, you know, describe it as like a dysfunctional marriage where, you know, they, they both sides have long stopped trusting each other, but they, they just are staying together because they need each other. And the CIA-ISI relationship is that is, is, is a microcosm of that broader U.S.-Pakistan relationship. So these countries were kind of thrown together after 9-11. And, and if you look at the U.S.-Pakistan history, that, that has happened over time. We were very close during uh, the Cold War. We fought uh, the Soviets together in Afghanistan. And, and then there was a period where we got sick of each other and, 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 and went apart. And then you saw Pakistan support for the Taliban in the 90s. And then, and then once again, 9-11 happens and we're thrown together. And we're... And, um, we worked very closely, and, and as you said earlier, your line, you know, familiarity can breed contempt. And um, there became over time this feeling that both sides were double dealing. Mm -hmm. And the United States became angry that they saw the Pakistan, Pakistanis supporting the Taliban um, and, and aiding the Taliban in Afghanistan while American troops were getting killed. Conversely, you saw Pakistani anger rise about drone strikes, about secret American operations in Pakistan. And um, and and this sort of builds up over time um, until um, what I argue is this real, in essence, almost breaking point. It was it was not the it was not the Bin Laden raid. It was months earlier with this Raymond Davis episode where right, in Lahore in yeah. Lahore, which yeah. I found, and it was only on going to Pakistan to report the book that I recognized how important it was in uh, from the Pakistani point of view. This was the defining moment uh, because. Uh, from the Pakistani point of view, Raymond Davis, and I will give a bit of background mm -hmm. for those who don't remember the episode, Raymond Davis was a contractor uh, who was uh, in Lahore, Pakistan, and was driving through the streets of Lahore in a car in traffic, uh, was approached by two men he thought were trying to uh, rob him, and he shoots them both. And um, he tries to escape. Um, uh, the uh, a car from the embassy is sent. It drives down the wrong way of a one-way street, kills a third person, drives away, leaves Raymond Davis in the street by himself. And Raymond Davis is picked up by the Lahore police, and um, he's interrogated. And the opening scene of my book is the interrogation of Raymond Davis. Um, and um, Early on, uh, President Obama makes the case, you know, this person is a diplomat. He was working out of the embassy. He has immunity. Send him back. Um, that's quickly peeled away, and it turns out he was a contractor for the CIA. And so 
um, the reason why I, I, I spend time about on the, on the Davis episode was because in the Pakistani mind, this was the proof that they thought they had long been missing, uh, that the CIA had deployed this large contingent of operatives in the country doing Raymond Davis-like things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was the evidence that they had. And so um, Raymond Davis became the sort of boogeyman in Pakistan for the to sort of the stand-in for mm-hmm. CIA perfidy. And um, so that's why I spent a lot of time right. on that. So you, you alluded to it when you were talking about Raymond Davis, about part of your book deals with also the public-private partnership that has grown so much in the last you know 10 years. I mean, this is nothing new necessarily. I mean, privateers in the revolution for Hughes during the Glomar Explorer operation, you know, Lockheed Martin building the U-2. There's been a very strong, actually very positive public-private partnership in the intelligence world in American history. But in the last decade or so, this has gone to a degree that no one had ever seen before. I mean, Blackwater is one of the great examples of this, but the idea that Snowden actually worked for Booz Allen before he released all this information, that there are as many, if well, maybe not as many, that certainly the numbers are still something we can't get our hands on, but there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people working for private corporations that are doing intelligence work in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about this, as you do in your book as well? Yeah, that's a, uh, that is a, a phenomenon that is, um, as you said, existed certainly before September 11, 2001, but um, has uh, escalated dramatically in terms of how much the government outsources uh, to private companies, to private individuals, whether it's intelligence uh, collection analysis, uh, even uh, sometimes proposed lethal action, as I write about in my book. Um, and it's some, it's, it runs the gamut. Uh, from uh, you know Blackwater uh, beginning its work from the, for the CIA right after 9/11 when they were hired as guards to go protect the CIA station in Afghanistan uh, to expand to include uh, work going with CIA officers on raids in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to being actually even part of a proposed lethal operation uh, that got outsourced to Blackwater um, during the middle of, of last decade. Um, so I write a lot about it in the book, and um, th- there's the big companies, the big well-known companies like Blackwater, but there's also the individuals, in some cases very opportunistically, uh, recognize that there's money to be made here uh, because you know, the military or the CIA are going places and fighting in places that we don't quite understand, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Somalia or Yemen and Pakistan, for that matter. And so people with expertise uh, can can promote themselves as experts and sell themselves to a- agencies that uh, might uh, might be a little bit desperate. So I write about um, uh, a woman named Michelle Ballerin in the book, who is a uh, individual lives out in Virginia and um, uh, on, the, on, a, on a horse farm, and she has uh, this sort of interesting history as a socialite in Washington, and uh, but also be- developed a, a sort of passion for Somalia, and. Um, um, so she, during one period in time, um, gets a contract with the Pentagon uh, to go gather intelligence uh, in uh, Somalia, in part because the uh, the Pentagon w- d- didn't have any other way to do it, mm-hmm. and and then later gets involved in pirate negotiations. So, um, and my point in writing about her was not to sort of make the case that she is she is a central character uh, to the history of the last dozen years, but to show I think it's illuminating the fact that someone like this does get a contract that does get money um, shows just how it's another sort of facet of this war we're in right now. And people might be surprised. It's not just a contract. They're being paid extraordinary amounts 
of I, money. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I mean it's 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 a fraction of what a F thirty five costs. Right. Well, everything's but, a fraction of what an F thirty five costs. But, but, costs, it, right? but it's um, <laughs> but it's still you know for you and me a lot of money yeah. and um, and you know this is taxpayer money and so whether it's that or whether it's um, uh, a private spy network in Afghanistan and Pakistan run by uh, Dwayne Claridge, uh, Dwayne Dewey Claridge, who was a former uh, s- sort of famous and infamous CIA uh, officer uh, who sort of set up his own network and was uh, doing some work for the Pentagon. I mean, I think these are interesting uh, and, yes, fun stories that um, that I, I, I wanted to write about because I'm interested in characters, I'm interested in writing about characters, and and um, and I, but I think it's also, as I said, illuminating. Let me ask you a final question, and it's about the title of the book. Um, it was, I, I, it's not just kind of a random title thrown together and sometimes they are but the way of the knife actually does have a, a at least a, a meaning behind it uh and, it, and i think it's it's somewhat appropriate to to explain that if you will sure yeah. um it came from a um uh, it, it came from a speech that john brennan gave uh several years ago john brennan now the cia director uh, formerly the top counterterrorism advisor for president obama at the white house and he was trying to draw a contrast between how uh, the wars in iraq and afghanistan um, are run uh, which he said was the hammer 100,000 troops you know advancing on cities uh, and um, and and doing it in the way that militaries have for hundreds of years thousands of years uh, and and he so he said that's the hammer he said he said the other way is the scalpel which was um, sort of targeted uh, uh, killing or a targeted approach um, to warfare um, now scalpel of course implies very surgical mm-hmm. something that's bloodless in many ways um, and in many ways very easy without costs or consequences um, I chose instead knife uh, which um, uh, is I think a little bit more representative of this kind of war, and I, so I chose the title "The Way of the Knife" because I said um, if if I want to write about how this war has been uh, conducted outside of these big wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I thought that was an apt analogy, and um, to also make the point that. Um, no matter how much uh, we have advanced in technology, no matter how different you know, drone strikes in the tribal areas of Pakistan might be from carpet bombing in Vietnam, and it is different um, in terms of uh, magnitude of civilian casualties and all that, um, it, it's not without cost. It's not without consequences. Um, these are very real lethal actions that I think um, will have consequences for the future and that we need to wrestle with. So, so that's where I came up on the title. Mark Mazzetti is the National Security Correspondent for the New York Times. He is the author of The Way of the Knife, The CIA, A Secret Army, and A War at the Ends of the Earth. And you can find his articles in the Times on a biweekly basis. I mean, you're knocking them out pretty quickly. Uh, but they're all very fascinating, and they're all very topical. Uh, Mark, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the National Spy Museum. Thanks so much. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. 
we here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.